It's Wild Wild Pest, the deep dive podcast about the South's most notorious outlaws. Palmetto Pete and his posse were the nastiest cockroaches you could ever fear to meet. Nope. Trespassing, loitering, scaring innocent folk when they turned on the light. No thanks. And that's not to mention all the diseases the germ-ridden no-good nicks were known to spread. Oh no. Oh yes, but fear not. Terminix was on the case with all the skills, experience, and tools needed to outdraw the outlaws. Learn more at TrustTerminix.com. Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths they are linked to. Hello there. Welcome. I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker across from me. And Seton, let's start off by telling about the Facebook page and the website where they can reach out. Yes, you can find us on our Facebook page, which is Murdoch Podcast, and also on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. There you go. Uh, We are doing a different kind of episode this time. We've had experts in the past on money laundering and a forensic accountant and an expert on FOIA, the Freedom of Information Acts. And uh, today we're going to talk to a 911 operator. Explain to people why we decided to do this episode, Seton. Well, there's just been such little information released from SLED about the deaths of Maggie and Paul and also the other deaths that have been tied to this case. But we thought it would be kind of a good time to go back and revisit the 911 call from that Alec placed when Maggie and Paul were murdered and just kind of do a deeper dive, listen to it again with some fresh ears, and then bring in somebody who really can break it down for us in a meaningful way. Plus, you've mentioned that we've been getting a lot of questions. We hear so much about all the legal stuff that's going on, but people are really wanting to know about the investigations into Maggie and Paul's death, Stephen Smith's death, Gloria Satterfield's death. People want to get some answers on this. So we'll give you the 911 call that Alec placed the night of the murders of his wife Maggie and son Paul on the Moselle property, and then we will bring in a 911 operator and discuss how 911 operators handle these kind of situations First, here is that Alec 911 call.
Okay, and did you see anyone? Okay, is he breathing at all? No, no. Is she? Okay, do you see anything? Do you see anyone in the area? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. What color is your house on the outside? What color is your house on the outside? Uh, it's white. You can't see it from the road. Okay, is it a house or a mobile home? It's a house. Okay, and what is your name? My name is Alex Murdoch. Okay, and did you hear anything, or did you come home and find them? No, man, I've been gone. I, I just came back. Okay, and was anyone else supposed to be at your house? No, ma'am. Please hurry. We're getting somebody out there to you. Oh. Okay, what is her name? Maggie, Maggie and Paul. Uh, Maggie is her name? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And please hurry. Uh, we're getting somebody out there to you, me asking you these questions. Don't slow them down, okay? And you sure they're not breathing? Is he moving at all, your son? I know you said that she was shot, but what about your son? <laughs> Nobody. They're not. Neither one of them moving. <laughs> what is your telephone number? <laughs> and does anything look out of place? Ma'am, not not particularly, really, no, ma'am. Okay. Okay. All right, I'm going back down there. Close, ma'am. Yeah, they're, they've been around with you ever since uh, you've got on the phone with me. I have multiple people coming out there to you. Huh. 
Okay, can you do me a favor, Mr. Murdoch, and turn on the flashers on your car so that way they can see where the kennels are? Do you have your flashers on for me, Mr. Murdoch? Yes. Okay. I don't want you to touch them at all, okay? I don't I don't know if you've already touched them, but I don't I don't want you to touch them just in case they can get any kind of evidence, okay? I I already touched them trying to get a um to see if they were breathing. Okay. Well I, I just don't want you to move anything just in case they can get any kind of evidence, okay? Oh. Ma'am, I'm going to call. I, I need to call some of my family. Okay. Well, well, do me a favor for me. Whenever you see the officer or the medics, because they're, they're all coming to you. Absolutely. Okay. But we have them come in. Turn on the flashes on your vehicle so they can see you, Okay. You got the flashers on for me? I do. Okay. All right. Just whenever you see them. Okay. How old is your son? 22. Okay. All right. We're, we're getting them out there to you, okay? And I will answer if you call. All right. So that is the actual 911 call from Alec Murdoch the night he found Maggie and Paul murdered. Now we are going to talk to a 911 operator named Sue, who will talk about some of the ways she has been taught to handle those calls. We want to really point out that Sue is not a 911 operator in South Carolina, and some municipalities and states do some things differently. Plus, it's very important to point out as well, when Sue will say they didn't ask this or they didn't ask that, it could very well be that that was redacted. Right. Yeah. And I actually spoke with another 911 operator, not the one we're talking to today, from the state of Virginia. And actually, that's not allowed. Uh, in Virginia, if you release a 911 tape, you are not allowed to redact it at all. So it's unusual. I guess those laws vary state to state. So, Sue, hi. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Let's uh, start with the fact that the different states and municipalities or areas could be different because you've worked for a couple of different places as a 911 operator. Can you explain what might be differences that you come across depending on who you work for? Oh, absolutely. So I've worked both for private ambulance services and 911. And the the differences right off the bat is obviously our protocols. Jurisdictions, cities, states are all different on how we're going to handle every single call. Um, a lot of it comes down to wording, what they want you to ask in the call itself versus what you're going to deal with. So say you're a somebody who's answering the phone and I'm this sole person dealing with an EMS side of it. Somebody else may deal with strictly police. Someone else may deal with fire. It all very much depends on who's answering the phone, who I need to transfer you to, or who else needs to jump in as well. So when it comes to your protocols and jurisdictions and everything like that, it's going to be the wording is going to be vastly different and then what they expect from the call and what they need, whether even it's in the city or rural, it's also going to be different. It could be more difficult for some 911 operators 
as to others because you might be, say, one 911 operator in a location might be just doing the 911 and they're hitting buttons or whatever, and the police and the EMS or whoever or supervisor are taking care of a lot of things. In some cases, the 911 operator is juggling it all. Is that am I right on that? That is correct. And I've I've seen both instances where you have multiple operators in one room and we're able to help each other out. I've also been in a room with only one other operator in a very small city that that's it. And if that other operator is on the call, you're alone. And that would leave you to dispatch EMS, fire and police and communicate to all three while you're on the phone. Let me ask you this. Is there any standardized national training that dispatchers are required to do? Yes. um, It's emergency medical dispatch. So EMD training that we all have to do for the most part, nationally, it would be the same. But then they always end it with follow your local protocols. So you get a basis of what everything should be. Um, like we have like the EMD card set that we follow, which has now been computerized. So you're going to follow these exact prompts. However, different areas may add in different things that they request of you to ask. So what are the prompts that are on that EMD card? Well, you're going to have a lot. So you're going to have your basic intake. For instance, whenever somebody calls in, you need to verify like immediately if it's going to be a non-emergent call versus an emergent call. Obviously, also depending on the area, it could be a direct 911 call or it could be the local call you get in. It's also very different and also very odd in that form, but it's that is how most of them are. So in case of an emergency call, you would be asking, like the prompts would be, what is the address that you're calling from? And can you repeat your address for verification purposes? Then you're going to get their last name, first name, and then their phone number. And then you're going to ask, tell me exactly what happened. Those are the basic prompts that you're always going to start with. If it's something along the lines of, you know, somebody says that there's a house fire, now you immediately go to a different card or screen that you're going to click on for that structure fire. And then it's going to walk you through the prompts as to what to ask the exact questions that are required of you at that time versus a car accident. There's different prompts for that. Like how many cars were involved? Did you see the colors of the cars? Is there anybody injured? How many people are there? So everything is going to be different depending on what the actual call is going to be. You want to say the caller's name over and over and over again, right? And you also will ask the address multiple times and phone number. And some people can get annoyed by that, but you have to make sure everything's right, correct? Yes. And being on all the, in the field side, in the dispatching side, and on the, the caller side, it can be very frustrating. Knowing what I do, I understand. But when you're in a state of panic, it can also be very difficult and very annoying because somebody says, you know, what is your address? And you give it to them and you're calling from a cell phone, which means now you may not have called, you're going to call the national 911 line, which could be in this moment of Colorado. And you could be in Pennsylvania. So now they have to transfer you to the correct location. So really cell phones have really shaken up how dispatchers have to treat things because someone who maybe lived in California, but now lives in South Carolina area, but they still kept their previous cell phone. A lot of people, myself included, we don't, I don't have a, I'm phone anymore. Yeah. See, and the and the interesting part is over the last couple of years, um, the big cities have been able to narrow it down to like a three point area. So you have a triangle. Oh wow. Um, so whenever that's where your cell phone is going to bing off all of the towers. So we're able to get a so many mile location, but that's usually only in big cities. The smaller cities don't have those. So whenever you hear people saying, like, oh, well, they were able to find my location, you know, and that was incredible. Yeah. Do you do you live in Chicago versus do you live in a tiny little city? 
the little cities didn't have that. You're you're basing it on the address that you gave and trying to transfer to the correct location. And that can take up to a minute, which is valuable time, but that's what we're up against. Now I'm going to go into this. When we start talking about this, I want to be clear to everybody. When we start talking about Alex 911 call, I want to remind you again that protocol different everywhere, stub substance be retracted. So this is not really like a any kind of slight on this 911 caller because we don't know what's missing. What we're going to talk about is what Sue would have asked and noticed which was missing. But that doesn't mean it was missing because it would have been taken out. Right, because it's been redacted. And let's clarify because we have a couple of 911 calls yes. Uh, yes. involving Alec. This is the 911 call that he placed after the deaths of Maggie and Paul. Okay, so you talked to me about the six W's. Explain what that is. Okay, so you're going to have the – anytime you have like an emergency, and now let's say in this case of – um, bodily harm. So a stabbing, a gunshot wound or anything like that. So your questions are going to be the who, what, when, where, why weapons. Those are that right off the bat, those are the things that you immediately want to know whenever you're talking to somebody. And you felt in hearing uh, this, and again, you're not uh, casting dispersions at this person, but you thought they were missing like how many people are, are, are there there, right? It, and explains a couple of other things that you saw you felt were missing. I, I did. And obviously, since we don't know what they've pulled out of the actual yeah. tape, all I can go by is um, like how we discussed the the silence on the end. And we've already discussed that as to why the the dispatching, the typing, trying to get all the information. I know it like as humans, we all do tend to panic sometimes and it's hard to reel that back in. A lot of times people do great jobs at reeling that in, um, putting your your personal side, your personal feelings aside. If you're able to, those are the top questions that you want to immediately ask, like who you are and repeating their name, like we discussed earlier, to keep them grounded, too, because it sounds a lot better instead of saying, you know, like the sir or the ma'am, you want to keep them grounded. You want to pull them back. The where, we got those answers. We we didn't really get the, the whys. That is a tough one. The part that did get me a little bit, again, we don't know if it was taken out or not, is the question that was never asked on who did this, you obviously don't know, but are they still in the area? Did you see a weapon? Did you see anyone leaving the area? Gunshot wounds and stabbings, for instance, would be, we would like a time frame. Are they, are they dead? Are they not dead? How do you know they are dead? Is the blood dried kind of question? Like, I don't ask that directly, but it's, you're trying to get a before six hours or after six hours are the big things that you you oh, want to wow. find out immediately is there going to be like be able to be life saved at this point so it was I, I was a little thrown on that one that that was one of the big ones yes take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around right so you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to you want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in and you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
for a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. One thing you pointed out, well, I'll stay with that for a second, is just saying he thinks they're dead or they're not breathing would not be enough for you in that instance to just go, okay, let's move on to the next thing. I think you said you would tell him to get close to the body and tell me to describe the chest and stuff like that, right? You wouldn't just go, okay, they're dead. Yes. One of the big things, like, let's take for gunshots, it's where were they shot? That is the most important thing. Was somebody shot in the leg? Were they shot in the stomach? Were they shot in the head? Were they shot in the chest? It's, I want to know these, these answers because that also has a lot to do with how we're responding. It's if you're shot in the head, yes, there may be obvious death. If you're shot in the the chest or the stomach, it may not be so obvious. If you get, are you able to get close to the body? Do you see a, the chest rising and falling? Do you hear anything coming out of their nose or mouth? That kind of thing. And you also said, because you would ask about weapons, right? You're going to ask not only are the weapons there mm-hmm. that were used, but you're going to ask the caller if they have any weapons or there's any weapons in, in that area, right? Yes. Especially when you are uncertain, like, um, for any case, it's, I don't know what happened. It's, I am brand new to, to the situation you're calling in. So how did they get shot? If they're yelling about how I don't know, we're now assuming that, that you didn't do it. It's, which is acceptable and we may move on. However, do you see a weapon or is there a weapon that you have that could hurt any of my officers or any of my EMS personnel? That's a big one. People in shock tend to do crazy things sometimes when they feel threatened or a family member threatened. It You don't mean to, but it does happen. What I found interesting, unless it was taken out, they were on a hunting property. There's got to be guns around. You would, mm-hmm. if they, you would think that there would have been, and again, it could have been taken out, but a question of, do you have guns? Are there any guns around? And I got to assume there are guns around. There might even be some that are just laying there. And that wasn't, at least it wasn't talked about. It also wasn't talked about where on the body they were shot, uh, which I didn't know this. So you're clearing this up for us because I didn't know that you would go into the blood. How, what does it look like? Where's the shot? Like real details. And it was interesting that they didn't ask Paul's age till the very end of the call. Why is it important to know the ages of the victims? Okay, so that is vastly important. So whenever it was stated that it was, you know, my wife and my son. So that's a big difference on what we're going to be sending, who we're going to be sending, and where we're going to be transporting to if there, you know, could be life-saving measures. So if if the person is a pediatric, anyone under the age of 12 years old, that's that's different equipment. That's different needs. That's that could even be depending on the area, different personnel altogether. If I only have a let's say a basic unit, which would consist of two EMT basic personnel to respond, they are not going to be able to accommodate the life-saving measures that a paramedic can do that has advanced life support skills to start IVs, to to do cardiac all of these things. So it's very important to know, are we dealing with someone over the age of 60, someone under the age of 12? Are we dealing with an infant? And the dogs were an odd one to you. Explain why you mean by that. So when I had listened and the the original 911 call that I had listened to, and I heard dogs barking in the background, that it's interesting, things people never think about. At the end of a 911 call, I will say, if you have any pets, make sure they are locked up, turn on your porch light and stand outside and wait for 
the personnel to arrive. It's animals in general are, especially dogs, will attack. It's they could say you could walk into a house being on the 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 field side and the MT side and somebody saying, oh, my my Doberman is very friendly. They have never bitten a soul. Well, now I'm handling this Doberman's owner and mm-hmm. they become very possessive. They, oh, be, yeah. they can become very mean. They it's those that you always want to make sure that the animal is secured. And to hear the dogs barking would have immediately, you need to listen to everything going on on the phone call. You need to, to take in your sounds, the things that are going on, dogs barking. Are you outside? Are you by train tracks? Are you by all of these things you need to take into account? Well, two things I wanted to bring up. There's been a lot of speculation about, you know, you mentioned you'd always ask how many people were there and the police reports that were released were heavily redacted and there's just been a lot of speculation that there may have been someone else. So I kind of want to point out that th- potentially there was someone else there. And that's just a big question that a lot of people have. So I just kind of wanted to just circle back with you about that. Because you would because you would ask clearly how many people are there, who's there, all that. Not just yes. yes. Is there anyone with you? That That is a big one. You want to know for safety reasons, could this other person, do you know this other person? Is somebody hanging out in the area that you don't recognize or on your property? It's. I, I also want to know if, if that person is able to comfort you or if it is someone who is close to the the matter at hand, can you hand off the phone to them so I can get more clear answers? We personally have been there and our cell phone coverage, I did not have any. I think you had a little bit of cell phone coverage. We've been told that cell phone coverage in this area is spotty. We witnessed that ourselves and that it was possible that you had to go closer to the home to have some cell phone reception and that you may not have had some coverage at the scene. So what do you do in this situation? Do you, when someone has to kind of go back to, in order to be able to talk on the telephone? And that is a tough one. If they're unable, if, if I cannot hear you. So in that case, I may say if the person is unable to be saved in your eyes, are you able to walk closer to your home? That is a very tough situation that I personally have only probably run into one time and they were able to hand off the phone to to a bystander who was able to walk into a reception range. But that actually, that would be a very difficult one if there is nobody around on, if you're able to encourage them to walk away, if the call is dropped, if I try to call back and nobody answers the phone. Those are all, all things that you would be noting through your entire conversation, but a very, that's a tough one. Do you, in your training, we don't know what this one's training was, do you point blank say, do you know who shot or stabbed the people? Sometimes. Actually, in one area that I was in, we did. We That was, do you know who could have done this? Huh, interesting. In another area I was in, we do not. We gloss over that that bit of information. So it that's a, yeah, that's one that differs. And you also said that rule rule in the places that you've worked was never let the person off the phone until the EMS or whomever arrived. That is correct. Yes. You always say no matter how many times they want to try to get off the phone, whether it be to do something else to it's people become hysterical and you want to try to, you're also a counselor. You're trying to bring them down and ground them as best you can. And it's okay. I need you to stay on the phone with me. Okay. You're doing a great job. And you're saying their name, you're keeping them grounded. You're, I need you to focus on the conversation at hand and you need to be firm. You need to be direct, but you need to be caring because of the situation. So you want to keep them on the phone because you don't know where they're going to go. You don't know if they're the person that did it. You don't know if it's a stranger. You, you really don't know. All you know is the information that they've given you. 
So, yeah, because I found it really odd that Alex says, I need to get off the phone and call some family members. So if that was you, how would you respond? I would actually, I would not let them off the phone. It'd be different if they hung up. I would try to call back. But to, I'm going to need, I, I understand where you're coming from. I know you need to do that right now, but I need you to stay on the phone and you need to let me know when EMS or police have arrived. That is the big one. You don't want that person to be alone. Um, and it's for multiple reasons, but you always keep them on the phone as best you can. You will get hung up on a lot, but you do your best to keep them on the phone through the entire thing until someone arrives. Let's talk about uh, reactions that you have had in your 911 call history. And But let's start with things that you thought were different or interesting in how Alec was acting during the call. Were there anything that stood out or seemed different or odd? So you have several different ways of how people respond to a traumatic thing that they've just witnessed, um, especially when it comes to someone they know or care about. So different forms of shock. Usually there you have the hysteria where it's the sobbing, the screaming. You cannot bring them back. Those are usually the moments you try to get somebody else on the phone if you can. They are just all over the place. They're not making any sense. Um, you also will have the ones that are very matter of fact that it's, I came home. This, this is what I've seen. It's, you were in full blown shock. You, you are just an autopilot now and, and recognizing what you've, what you've experienced. Then you also have the ones that, that are very curious, like what I noticed. And obviously this is just my opinion. It was very different from a lot. And I've heard a lot over the course of 10 years of how, people respond. And this one particularly almost, it was a very hysterical, however, not giving much information from what I heard that was actually played and then how the response was. And then the, I need to get off the phone to call my family. I know everyone acts different. I know on, on my side, it's being a caller. It's, it's very traumatic and you want someone to be with you. And if you're alone, that may be your next step. That may be, I, I need to call someone. It's okay. And you know what? We're going to do that. But right now we're going to stay on the phone. It was interesting on how it was very, they were shot. They are dead. I need to call my family. But it was hysterical at the same time. And that was one that I hadn't really heard at the same time. Obviously, every person is different on how they're going to handle things. I just found that one a little unique. I guess what you're saying is it was a combo. It was a combination of yes, robotic and yes. set. Okay. It, it was a mixture of two, which I don't, I don't always see and I don't always hear. I'm sure it could happen, but it was interesting on my end that it almost seemed, hearing so many that I have, let's say 25 calls a day, it was, it was interesting that it seemed almost forced or almost rehearsed, in my opinion. So... The 911 operator that I spoke with said she finds that the calmest people are usually facing the worst trauma. So I just got, I found that this has nothing to do with this particular 911 call, but I didn't know if that was your experience as well. Yes, absolutely. It is very interesting when you have someone that calls you and they are being very matter of fact of I walked in the door and my whoever, my mother has been stabbed multiple times in the face. And you're like, okay, okay. And they're just being matter of fact. And then it's okay. Um, I need to let the dogs out before you, you come so they can go to the bathroom before I put them away. And it's, it is, you're right. They are overly calm. 
You said there was that one case where a guy went about, like ignored the fact that his wife was murdered on the couch or something. What was that story? Oh, okay. So there was one that a gentleman and his wife were, they were part of a robbery. Someone had broken into their home and they were both shot multiple times. His wife was dead on the couch. And for several days, people were getting concerned because he wasn't showing up for work. And when finally they were doing a welfare check and they got there and he was very matter of fact, and he still had blood on him. He obviously he was shot as well, but he was he was going about daily life activities. You were in a weird primal mode at that point. He was making his coffee. He was getting dressed. He was showering. He was doing all of the things. And when asked, he just stated his wife was sleeping. It's he had no idea what (laughs) had occurred because that part of your brain just blocked it out. And they proved that he didn't do it, right? Right. How do, how do you go home when you, when you are told that someone was stabbed in the face? Does, do you bring this home with you or you're able to kind of compartmentalize? Personally, in the beginning, I can say I did not do that great. There was a, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of anger. There was, there was, it was like your shoulders constantly hurt you. The screaming and crying that you may hear on the phone or not being able to save someone's life or someone committing suicide on the phone and you couldn't do anything. And you know, at the end of the day, it is not your fault that you did your best, but it is, it is wearing on you. You, after a while, you're like, I, how long can I do this? How long can I bring this home to my family to, to get, have outbursts of anger of aggression or to see someone else's child and know that you just took a call earlier of somebody else's child that got killed or their parents murdered them or it's it is very difficult and it was very hard in the beginning but something i was told a long time ago was that the day that you get used to it is the day that you should quit because you should never get used to it you should never be cold you should never be stern in the form of I'm done with this. It's, you know what? It's just another call. You always have to be caring. And if you get to the point of no compassion, you shouldn't be doing that job anymore. That's so interesting because we had a South Carolina coroner on, Sabrina Gast, and she said the exact same thing. All right, Sue, thanks for calling. All right, thank you guys. Have a good one. Mm-hmm. Thank Bye. you. Wow, I thought that was really informative. I've definitely had a lot of questions after listening to it the first time. I think I have a better perspective after hearing from an actual professional. I agree. And we have some comments. We want to share. Kristen on one of the Sleuth Groups said, Thank you, Seton Tucker and Matt Harris, for an amazing episode. Listening to it during my chemo infusion gave me something to be excited about during this time. Forever grateful. Has a picture of herself. And Kristen, we're actually the grateful ones. So thank you very much. Other comments, not necessarily praising us, but here's one from our Facebook page. Uh, Yes, so we had someone who, uh, Terry Ann, said that she didn't see the point about having the native on that we had on our last episode, and I respectfully disagree. I really thought bringing a local perspective and the impact it had on the community, I found it very interesting, but, you know, we'll take the criticism. Sometimes, you know, someone might not like something we do, and we we can take it. Right, and you can fast forward past that part if you don't like it. That's all a peripheral part of this story, and uh, we have been doing that throughout the entire podcast where we've covered different things about this whole story, uh, talking to experts and talking to reporters and talking to people in the town and people who knew the family. So that's what we do. And trying to present all sides. Right. Speaking of that, uh, this comes from Nancy. I love your podcast. I'm sure you get criticism from a lot of people, really. But I much prefer to hear John Snyder's factual analysis. It certainly paints a clearer picture of the case than we would otherwise have, especially the heads up he gave about Alec Murdoch refusing the estate. Thank you, Nancy. 
you want to give us comments, you want to reach out and ask questions, this is how they do it. You can find us on Facebook at Murdoch Podcast or on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. And we will talk soon. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6000 cash, give us each 3000 we give you this. Uh-huh. You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.